Hi, so we're back in the study of Genesis. So as the curtain closed on Genesis chapter 2 that we covered last week, things were really good. Um, men and women are in harmony with each other, harmony with nature, and in harmony with God. And then we're introduced to Genesis chapter 3, this tragic story of how it all unraveled, uh, the story of the great fall of man. And so let's pick up with Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. So the serpent comes. Uh, the serpent, the most um, stealthy and, and loathsome of animals. And um, it's aptly the picture of Satan in the Bible. Um, the personal embodiment of evil. Uh, the devil himself. And so the serpent comes and he says, and you know, like what would he say? Uh, it's interesting that the serpent engages in a dialogue about, of all things, God's word. Um, he says... Did God really say? Did God really say? Interesting that the devil's first temptation of man is not to hand him some sword or a torch and encourage him to like, engage in some sacrilegious act of vandalism. It's, it's a discussion about God's word. It's sort of intellectual, like, hey, I'm interested in the Bible. What did God actually say? Did God actually say? Like, oh, no, 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 you know, God didn't say that. He didn't, he didn't really say that. He didn't really mean that. What he really meant was this. It's, it's that kind of move that's like maybe pretty modern. And it starts to erode away at the authority of God's word. Did God actually say that? It starts out by making Eve kind of doubt that God's words are absolute. Painting God's words is not so black and white, but all gray. Like a lot of gray areas. I mean, to be sure, that's the case. But the attitude with which we come at this. Did God really say that? That's really up to me to decide, isn't it? Uh, in other words, God's words don't have authority. Um, it's, it's all up to me. Well, what did God actually say? Did God really say that we need to surrender our lives, our entire lives to Him? I mean, He wants me to enjoy my time and my treasures and my family, right? So these verses about denying myself and taking up the cross daily, uh, surely he didn't mean that. Did God really say that? Did he mean it like that? Did God really say that I need to like share the gospel 
and make disciples of all the nations? Did God really warn against the love of money or for me to not lay up for myself treasures on earth, but to lay up for myself uh, treasures in heaven? Did God really say? That's the first move of Satan, to cast doubt on the applicability of God's word. I don't know if you read the Bible, I don't know where you are spiritually, but when you do, does it, does it come to you as absolute authority, as something that your Heavenly Father and your Creator gives you as a boundary in which you are to flourish? The second step, it's a focus on a slice of reality, and that slice of reality is a prohibition. The serpent's first question is about the prohibition. He doesn't come out and say, oh my, what a beautiful garden. Like, look, look what he provided for you. No, he says, wait, I heard there's a bunch of stuff you can't do. Um, as soon as your focus changes to that, to that which is forbidden, the boundary, then you feel like a caged animal. I mean, the one thing you can't do, this becomes the object of desire, maybe even obsession. Uh, and it throws like the ash on everything good you already have. Like when you see children like who can't be happy, like they have, maybe they've got a lot of toys, but the, the thing that this kid obsesses over is what? It's the toy that the other kid has. It's a, it's a built-in formula that we have just to be discontent. I think this speaks to a sort of the unbounded nature of man's desire, the insatiability of our cravings. It's amazing that in the garden, in the perfect place called paradise, man manages to be discontent. It's a great garden where all of his needs are provided, and yet there's that forbidden fruit. And Eve's attention is being directed by the serpent to that limitation, that boundary. What if a husband thought of marriage as, that, as, as basically in terms of what he can't do? Marriage is a great blessing within the, within the trust and uh, covenant and promise and vow of that relationship. There's so much richness. But what if he just thought of it as the boundary and he kept focusing on the boundary? And now he thinks, you know, after, on, on his wedding night, wait a minute, what have I done? Like, I can't talk to other women. Other women are now forbidden. Um... I can't have deep conversations pouring out my heart with other women. This, this fun, flirtatious way of being in the world is no more. Now I need to tell my wife, wife where I am and when I'm coming home. Like, if, like marriage is this big, giant ball of, you know, ball and chains. Like if that's how we thought about it, that would be kind of absurd, right? Like, some of the, like all of the things that he's saying, like, yeah, I can't do this, I can't flirt, I can't, like that's true. But it's such a small slice of reality that marriage is. You can't think of it like that. Like you can twist a lot of things. Um, I remember um, as an undergrad studying sociology, reading Marxist accounts of everything, and the Marxist feminist uh, um, an analysis of marriage would be something like exchange of sex for money, uh, you know, in an arrangement that kind of works. Wow, like, okay. Or, you know, flip that around, like a Nietzschean kind of male perspective would be marriage is just the way that the weaker sex, the weaker gender, uh, gets power over men to enslave them, uh, to exploit their labor and uh, for, for the, the, the provision and safety of the women and children. 
Uh, all of these would have a grain of truth, and that's why academics write articles and books about them. What about motherhood? Like a Darwinian analysis of motherhood would be the mother takes care of the young because the young carries her genes and she wants to propagate her genes into the gene pool of the next generation. Well, I suppose that's true too, but it, like, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a slice of reality. In other words, it's reductionistic to some, some slice that's true, maybe even clever sounding, and then expanding it and saying, this is all it is. Like you cannot reduce a mother's love for the child to Dar into Darwinian terms. Why? Because you're leaving out the relational aspect. We are relationships. Remember, God created us for relationships. God who himself is essentially relational. He is community, he is triune, and the most compact statement of God's nature in the Bible is what? God is love. So if you, if you twist it and look at it with twisted lens, you are seeing something, but you're missing the big picture. You're utterly distorting reality. Here's God's provision, the perfect host, the loving Father. And um, within that relationship, as it's defined by the boundaries of His moral authority, Within that relationship, we are meant to thrive. And now Eve is starting to ignore a lot of reality and focusing on that which is forbidden. So now Satan's third move is casting doubt on God's motive. He's like, okay, here's God. He's doing this. Why? So listen to him in verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. In other words, like, don't be silly. No big deal. There are no consequences. For, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, the thrill of your eyes being opened and knowing stuff and then being like God, like no longer under his thumb. And he says, for God knows this. See, God knows that all of these good things could happen to you, would happen to you. And that's why he's forbidding you this thing. For God knows. I think this is a message that resonates deeply within our hearts. Uh, this, this sinister view of God. The suspicion that God is holding out on me. That he will ruin my life if I trust him. That life of living within his boundaries is dull and drab. And you'd be a fool to do it. Satan's message is wise up. Like discern good and evil for yourself. According to that line of reasoning, God is into enslaving you and the church and Christians are his sort of squad of goons to go out and capture more people, to bind you up and make you miserably enslaved into God's moral authority. With that kind of twisted lens, everything seems sinister. So what do you do? What do you do? Like, it's just not, not only God, it's like all relationships. You, you cannot have them without any trust, but you won't trust. Trust no one. I think Satan's happy that we're all cut off from one another nowadays. Like everyone skeptical and cynical about everyone else, assuming the worst of others, thinking that trust is not an option. Take this example. Let's say there's a, a guy owning a small business and uh, call him the boss, and he goes out of his way to provide good salary, good benefits, and like gourmet food and like extra nice snacks in the employee lunchroom. Everybody's happy, and and then someone, let's call him a Slytherin, uh, comes into the lunchroom. Everyone's singing the praises of the boss, and the Slytherin man just raises an eyebrow. 
rolls his eyes and he says, look, why do you think the man is doing that? Why would any businessman do that? Be this generous? Think about it. Just asking the question itself starts you out on an adversarial stance toward the boss, a skeptical stance toward the boss. Like there's something behind this appearance and it invites you to a scrutiny of skepticism. It says, look beyond appearances. Don't be a fool. Why do you think he's doing all this? And then let's say like one of the guys says, well, I think it's out of the goodness of his heart. Well, that guy just sounds like a simpleton, gullible, like childlike. Everybody else starts to think, yeah, of course, there's got to be more. There's a shadow side to it, isn't there? No, he's doing this because he knows that when we eat his nice snacks, we'll feel indebted to him. It's profitable for him to have our loyalty, you know, purchasing it cheaply with his silly snacks so that he can make more money from the extra productivity his gullible minions will bring him. Oh, and that theory just lands. No evidence. No evidence. And yet, the sinister interpretation somehow finds traction within us. And then, Eve is completely hooked now. So she starts to look at that thing with different eyes. In verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw, woman saw, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What did she see? It says, woman saw that the fruit was good for food, like it was maybe chunky and looked like it could be good food. Delight to the eyes, it was, it was beautiful. Well, that's precisely the description of not only this forbidden fruit, but every fruit in the garden, every tree, in other words, it's not like the whole garden was a desert, howling wilderness, you know, with just durian and cacti, and, and there's this lone succulent fruit. No, it all looked that way. But then there's a third. It says, it looked like it could make you wise, desired to make one wise. Like, how can any fruit look like that? I was thinking about that. How can any fruit possibly look like it could make you wise? Maybe by looking like a brain, but then it wouldn't be delightful to the eyes. Um, no, she's being fooled. And if you think about it, this is the genius of the entire advertising industry. Think about like a 16-year-old guy, like really wanting like that red convertible sports car. To him, it's not just a vehicle. To him, it looks like it's going to make him wise. Well, not wise, but cool, sophisticated, attractive, desirable. And when he rides in it, like he swells uh, in his own self-esteem. Just a car. She saw the sight, they say, is the most deceptive of the senses. Think about what you're taking in through your eyes, though. Our whole society just taking in so much through our eyes. And all the joy and life... Um, that we attribute to these scenes and images, we kind of know are all false. But whether we, well, before we can even like analyze them, is this true or not? It just goes direct to the heart and it stirs us. And we say, wow, that is gonna make me 
and then fill in the blank. Wise, awesome. Some woman, you know, some man. So cool, so attractive, looks so wonderful. Until it becomes your whole world. Why do married people with kids like commit adultery and destroy all that they cherish? Like putting a dagger into the heart of people who love them and who they love. Why do they do that? Like how are they able to do this? What is, what is the pathway? I think it's sort of like Eve looking at that fruit, that fruit dangling before her eyes. It becomes all of her reality. I, I see that fruit growing larger and larger until it, it fills her entire field of vision. What is that for you? Is it wealth? Is it sexual freedom that's on offer at all the college campuses nowadays? Is it a picture of a, a cozy and comfortable marriage, a nuclear family, successful career, making a name for yourself? What is it that you want that maybe you are over imbuing with qualities that it doesn't have. And then you imagine that following God will forbid you that. Like, what is that? And it's not thought out, it's, it's an emotion. What is that for you? Like Eve, is your focus getting narrower and narrower? I want this and God forbids me this. I want this and, and it's good, but God doesn't want me to have it because He's not for me, He's against me. Losing all sense of perspective. That's the ploy of Satan. Here's a, here's a wonderful quote about this topic. It says, Sin takes you further than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay and charges you more than you are willing to pay. And then this verse goes on. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's interesting. So true to life, sin seeks accomplices and partners. Why? Because sin isolates you. Do you remember the first time you told a lie, the first time you stole something like that didn't belong to you, first time you cheated on a test? How did you feel? It almost felt like the universe got a little colder and darker, or it felt like a veil was around you, like a sense of not being right, this little secret that separated you from other people. Oh, we quickly get used to it. But I think one of the ways that this manifests, this dis-ease with our own sinfulness is it seeks company. Like you want to corrupt others in a way so you don't feel as bad. This bizarre thing that we see on college campuses, this, this hazing rituals uh, in the Greek system, like what's that about? Like why force other people to get drunk? There's no pleasure in that. What's the pleasure in that? It's pure malice. That's what it is. And yet college administrators and parents Use excusing language like, oh, well, college students, college life. What's that about? I think the thought that others are just like me, you know, just as degraded or whatever, just, just as bad as me. I think this is the ultimate consolation of the scoundrel. Well, so Eve takes the fruit, gives it to her husband, and it severs their relationship with God. That fruit, in, in, in the paradise that God provided in the garden, the fruit was the presence of God. It's like a man taking off his wedding ring and throwing it on the ground. Like that represented 
the relationship between man and God. And they take it rejecting God, saying, God, I figured you out. I don't want you in my life. I'll be my own God from now on. I'll call my own shots. It's very chillingly familiar. It's an emotion that we don't have to try to have. This drive for autonomy, this imperious assertion of my sovereignty is very native to all of us. What is salvation? Salvation would be to reverse the fall, is to return to the boundaries, it's to restore trust in God, is to find ourselves rightly related to God and trusting God as our sovereign and living under His authority. The serpent said, you will be like God. And indeed, we have become like God. Lesser gods, small gods, inept gods. Salvation then is to say, no, I'm not going to be my own master. To decide for myself good and evil. I will no longer usurp the authority of my maker. Salvation is going back and saying, no, I have usurped your role, God. In the throne room of my heart, I've been sitting and I don't belong there. You're the sovereign. I think people find it natural to just say, hey, it's my life. Well, really? I think if you think deeper, you should find your being, existence and being itself as a huge miracle, a grant, a gift, a wonder. Why is this? Why is, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And, and a search for the antecedent, the origin, and the ultimate destiny. Without questioning any of that, I think we just naturally assume, hey, it's my life. The Bible calls that sin. Before sin is murder and hatred, uh, the moral vices and failings, it has its root here. It's when we kick out God as God from our lives and usurp that role. And now we're going to determine good and evil. And all of the sin, all of the hatred flows out of that. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Remember at the end of chapter 2, we encounter the expression, they were naked and unashamed. It's a beautiful description of truth and trust. Now, the realization of nakedness is cited as the first and most immediate of the consequences of sin. After the rebellious act of breaking with God, they discover suddenly that they only have themselves to look to. Wow. What a, what a, what a terror that must have been. Suddenly to realize, wait, I am God. I need to be my own God. And looking to myself and finding myself utterly inadequate. It's like the successful mutineer who's deposed the captain and he, he's at the helm. And suddenly he realizes, looking out into the dark sea, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, they actually spring to action, don't they? They sewed fig leaves together. Adam and Eve spring to action. They use their brain and skills and industry to construct a covering for their shame. I'm ashamed and now I need to be covered. And I think this is a profound picture of what motivates a lot of our drive for achievement. 
It's not so much that we desire the achievement or the money or the success. It's that attaining those things would somehow fill up a deep sense of inadequacy. It will cover up for our shame. It won't work. It's futile. It's a futile attempt to heal our spiritual brokenness with physical things like money or the approval and envy of other people. The shame, it comes from a spiritual source. So look what's going on. What is shame? Shame is a split within myself. Here's a person who looks at what he's done and is rejecting it. So Adam and Eve, they are alienated from, them, from themselves. And then they're alienated from one another. Look at Adam, like he was so in love. And now he's like, the woman who you put here to be with me. And he blames everything, like he blames God. By the way, that was your idea, you know. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And so there is enmity between Adam and Eve. Like the horizontal plane gets broken. And then third, there's a loss of relationship with God. So verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. Hiding, hiding from God. Verse 10, it says, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So they hide themselves. In other words, there is fear of God. There is a sense that I want to avoid God. I don't, I'm uncomfortable with God, the idea of God. I want to run away, um, this flight away from God. It's interesting how many people find God talk um, repulsive. And I've always found the anger of the atheists really interesting because if you don't believe God exists and he's just sort of a silly superstition, why the anger? There is an innate fear and the way that fear manifests is often anger hostility toward even the idea of God. I think, again, that tells you how profound Genesis is as an account of humanity. We are fallen. We're not evil all the way. We're not good all the way. We're broken. Like a shattered mirror reflects some of reality, but it's so distorted. We're a good thing gone bad. So we recognize our bad and their struggle and there's groaning. We're capable of so much beauty inspired by good and virtue. And yet we reach for it and find that we have clay feet. We reach for it and find that our appetites and our flesh overcome us. And yet there are times when we created in God's image can transcend and control and overcome our instincts. Yeah, we're curious creatures, fallen, fleeing from God, desperately trying to cover up for our shame with our drivenness. So I want to end with this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God comes. He calls. That's what God does. He's a loving father who's waiting for the prodigals to come back home. It's Jesus who said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Next week, we're going to cover the second half of Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to see the heart of God as he responds to all that God unraveled here. 
But for now, that's all we have. So let's take a minute, as we always do, to consider what points resonated with you, and then I'll close in prayer.